Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Immigration has once again become a hot topic in D.C., and President Biden is facing what could be the most contentious showdown between him and congressional Republicans. Meanwhile, investigators continue to look into the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters, and the race for Seattle mayor heats up. Those stories on the way, but first, President Biden is on his Help Is Here tour, selling the $1.9 trillion relief package in battleground states. Ike Ijachi is following it for ABC News and spoke with Como's Taylor Van Sice. Ike, it doesn't strike me as a very hard idea to sell. Here's a bunch of money, now go spend it. Um, what's the president's focus today in Pennsylvania? Well, President Biden in Pennsylvania, the whole point of this is talking to the American people, but more importantly, they're coming with facts. The Help Is Here tour is really President Biden trying to correct some of what he believes are mistakes from when he was back in the Obama administration. If you understand, when then-President Obama passed his stimulus package, and then a year later, the Affordable Care Act, he never really took a victory lap. He never really went around and sold it to the American people. Then-Vice President Biden thought it was, that was a mistake. Now, President Biden passing one of the largest legislative achievements in 80 years, he is doing the opposite. He's going around and he's talking to the American people. And today, he went to a small business in Pennsylvania that was really, really hurt by the pandemic. 21% of the small business owners in Pennsylvania actually report that they need additional financial assistance. And according to the White House, Pennsylvania, they're going to get about $7.4 billion in state relief and almost $5 billion in local relief. And these are the kind of facts and figures that President Biden is coming to Pennsylvania today and telling the American people exactly what kind of uh, assistance they'll be getting. A state very important to his victory in the election, but we're not out of this thing yet. What kind of line is the president having to walk to sort of temper expectations about businesses reopening and life returning to normal? Well, you see what happened earlier when he first uh, campaigned, saying 100 million shots in 100 days. That seemed to be a little underambitious. You'd have Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell saying that uh, the Biden administration already inherited a vaccine rollout of about a million a day. However, he did thank the Biden administration for continuing and ramping up. Nevertheless, that's why you saw President Biden kind of push up his expectations for a return to normalcy. If you remember, he initially said maybe by Christmas, we can see things getting to normal. Uh, you heard him a couple of weeks ago saying that we hope to see people gathering in small groups by the 4th of July. So he understands that certain things are maybe uh, certain benchmarks he set before, rather, maybe a little underambitious, which is why he's coming out now and kind of make, uh, fixing his words, talking to the American people. And mind you, he's not the only person doing that. Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, along with uh, Second Gentleman, Doug Emmerhoff, they're going around the country, too. Yesterday, they were in Las Vegas visiting a mass vaccination site. Today, they left the Denver airport. Uh, they toured another COVID vaccination site. And they also sat down with uh, Governor Jared Polis right there to participate in a listening session. Ike Ajachi with us on Como News from ABC. Ike, thanks very much. That's Como's Taylor Van Sice. Now to the issue of immigration. Here's Como's Elisa Jaffe. The Biden administration is dealing with an influx of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, with many of them children not accompanied by a parent or guardian. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas today didn't call it a crisis, like Republicans have been saying, but it said they're trying to rebuild the immigration process. We are building the capacity to address the needs of those children when they arrive, 
but we are also and critically sending an important message that now is not the time to come to the border. Joining us on the Como Newsline is ABC's Andy Field in Washington, D.C. Administration shying away from calling this a crisis, but thousands of kids were talking about, Andy, is it a crisis? Well, if you talk to Republicans, they say it is. Uh, the Democrats say it isn't. The Homeland Security Director Mayorkas, as you mentioned, uh, conceded that there is a surge in the number of children, mostly from Central America, but uh, it's also a challenge for the people at the border and other agencies to deal with this here, but they are not going to do what President Trump did, which was send them immediately back to Mexico or other countries. He says that these kids are vulnerable, that they have to be dealt with. You have to have a humanitarian approach to kids who are there. The problem is, and this is what Republicans are saying, is that we wouldn't have this issue right now had uh, President Biden basically lifted all these restrictions that President Trump has spent a lot of time putting in place. When it comes to the wall, it's a little bit disingenuous for Republicans to say, well, you know, if they kept building the wall, this wouldn't be a problem. The fact is, the Trump administration didn't build all that much wall. What they did was replace broken border area, but the president kept saying that, you know, we're replacing 500, 600, seven miles of, of wall or building new wall, when in fact, I don't think they replaced even uh, as much as 50 miles of wall. Andy, is the administration, however, quickly expelling most single adults and families? Well, we're trying to get a clear answer on that. And the fact is, is that uh, they're trying to. They certainly are trying to stop this surge here. Uh, Many of them did not come here, uh, notably, because they knew that they would be thrown right out. They wouldn't have some of the amnesty policies that the United States has had for years. Uh, until President Trump came into office. And so they knew that it was futile to even try because they would get booted right back out. Uh, The Biden administration says that there are immigration laws on the books that the U.S. has to follow. And and some of that means if you have a legitimate reason for declaring asylum, that the U.S. can indeed uh, let you stay here and work through the process. Uh, It was derisively called catch and release back During the Trump years, uh, the Biden administration says it's following the law. Uh, And then all of this is on top of the fact that Congress is trying to pass new immigration laws uh, to protect the dreamers, to protect uh, migrants who are coming into the country to work uh, for U.S. farms, which is certainly supported by those businesses because they want to make sure they can legally pay these people who are coming in here. So immigration it really hasn't changed much. It's still a mess. It's just that we don't have these ironclad, seal-the-border rules that we had under the Trump administration, and that's creating a headache for the new administration. Today, Mayorkas uh, on Good Morning America said that the border is secure, but I'm also hearing that Border Patrol agents are saying they're overwhelmed. And why then is FEMA getting involved? Well, they're getting involved because, indeed, it is not as secure as, as the Biden administration is is uh, touting right now because they have upwards of 4,000-plus undocumented children that they're really not sure what to do with, and those numbers grow every day. They're trying to find uh, places in Texas in, in large-capacity buildings to house them for up to 90 days until they can decide what happens to them. Do they get reunited with their parents back at the border if they can find a way to do this? Do they get put into foster homes? The Biden administration hasn't been clear on exactly what they're going to do with it, except that they are going to treat them humanely. ABC's Andy Field joining us from Washington. Thank you, Andy. Thank you very much. Once again, that's Como's Elisa Jaffe. Meanwhile, investigations continue into the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th with a new internal draft memo from the Army now coming to light. 
Once again, Como's Taylor Van Sice joins us with an update. It was obtained by the Washington Post, and as Peter Herman reports in the Post, the Army pushed to reject the D.C. government's request for a National Guard presence that day. Peter joins us on the Como Newsline. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. As I understand it, this is all having to do with the preparations for January 6th. And in this draft memo, did the U.S. Army give concrete reasons as to why the National Guard shouldn't be needed that day? They did. They gave a few reasons. Um, They didn't like the idea of, they were a little bit wary of uh, troops at and were around the the U.S. Capitol, for, for one thing. But mostly they were citing some opposition that the mayor and other city leaders had expressed back in May and June um, during demonstrations over George Floyd, um, in which the uh, Trump administration sent in um, National Guard from all over the country and threatened to send in active duty military. Apparently, the Army also wanted a, a federal lead, you know, someone other than the Army maintaining order that day or, or at least taking charge. Why is that? They thought that federal police presence would be better, um, and they wanted um, you know, the, the, her to go through the U.S. Department of Justice for help. Again, the mayor was very reluctant to do that, given what happened the last time, um, not having much control over who was here in the district, and um, having you know, the prospect of federal law enforcement, um, many carrying rifles, um, you know, without identifying who they are and where they're from, um, caused a uh, could cause some problems. She wanted a clear chain of command through her D.C. Police Department. Eventually, the Army uh, approves a small contingent of National Guard members uh, to, to be available. But as we know now, that initial presence wasn't enough. Why was it so small? Well, you have to remember that D.C. police and do not patrol the Capitol. The Capitol police have their own 2,000-member police force. So D.C. police and the district government were concerned about what anything that might happen on public off of federal property. They, and so they needed they, they requested a small contingent of National Guard simply to help police with direct traffic and direct pedestrian flow to free up police officers for other um, for other duties. Um, the U.S. Capitol Police are the ones that that did not at the onset ask for. Uh, either National Guard or help from other agencies until it was almost too late. Peter Herman with us on Como News, reporter for The Washington Post, and you can read all of his coverage online at WashingtonPost.com. Peter, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. That's Como's Taylor Van Sice. Turning now to election 2021. Locally, the biggest race of the year will be for Seattle mayor. Jenny Durkin has declined to seek a second term, and that has drawn a good number of candidates. Joining me now is Como's Charlie Harger, and uh, Charlie, as I look at this list, it appears, at least according to the State Public Disclosure Commission, for which any candidate has to file if they're going to raise money, there's probably 16 or 17 candidates, and we haven't reached filing day yet. Oh, we are not even close to filing day. And that's what's really interesting about this race, Jeff, is that everybody is in this, it seems. And from what I've heard from political observers, we could be talking a minimum of 20 people running and as many as 30 or even higher. It is going to be a very high interest race. People are going to be joining this race. Names we might not even expect. Of course, there are some names we do expect who have entered in the past few days. Just taking a look at some of those names, we had uh, James Donaldson, the former Seattle Supersonic. Uh, He was the subject of an Eric's Heroes uh, segment a couple of uh, weeks ago. 
uh, he's jumped into the race. And uh, most recently, and this was announced this week, is former mayor himself, former city council president, although brief mayor. Where's uh, your asterisk on that? Yeah, you need an asterisk. (laughs) He was was one of those like 67 mayors we had in the span of a week. Yeah, he served for five days. And if you are thinking, Bruce Harrell, he wasn't mayor, he was on the city council. Well, if you think back to September of 2017, where it all hit the fan at City Hall, uh, Ed Murray uh, resigns in disgrace and... By statute with the city of Seattle, uh, the city council president becomes acting mayor. So for five days, we had him serve as an acting mayor. What he did was uh, uh, basically was a caretaker. He did sign a a couple of executive orders on his last day in office. But uh, Bruce Harrell says, nope, I am not going to do this. I want to remain on the city council. But evidently he now wants that job so he is in the running and is uh, running for mayor of seattle making the announcement uh, outside of uh, his old high school in seattle you got to keep in mind that bruce harrell is also a guy who has been in seattle his entire life he was a starting linebacker for the huskies uh, he earned his juris doctor degree. He's a practicing attorney, and he served on the city council ever since 2007. So uh, he did uh, not run in 2019, so he's been off the past two years. And now here he is, and he's saying, this is the time. This is when I should be mayor. What did he said? What is he going to run on? Because with 17-plus candidates, or maybe even 20 or 30-plus candidates, when all is said and done, you've got to find a way to distinguish yourself from the crowd. I think what you're going to hear is a couple things. First of all, all of the candidates are going to hit many of the major issues, right? So there's affordable housing. That's going to be a a big issue. You're also going to hear homelessness. Many candidates will try to combine those two, saying they are a direct result of each other. Uh, Some candidates will split those into two separate issues, but say they contribute to one another. Uh, You are also going to hear about police reform from just about every candidate, uh, as well well as uh, racial relations. How are we going to improve in this city uh, the way we all see one another? So with Harold, what he is saying is that he is a person who understands how all of this works. Bruce Harold, uh, his mother is Japanese and his father is black. Uh, they, uh, he is a, a biracial man and he says that experience brings him to a point where he can understand a lot of the the issues that are going on that perhaps others in the race are not able to understand. He's a a person who uh, has said that he uh, will want reform within the Seattle Police Department, but I didn't hear him say at his announcement that he, he didn't say he wanted to defund Seattle PD. He wanted to change the way policing is done and add those services that, that we've heard a lot about, uh, where you might send mental health crisis counselors out to some calls instead of police. So uh, he, he's approaching it from th- that perspective. Uh, he is also what I, I think he is going to be, uh, we've already heard this in, in this race, he's going to be attacked uh because uh, other candidates are going to claim he's too business friendly. Uh, He was asked today, uh, what uh, do you make of uh, candidates who say you are in the, uh, 
you're a person who owes uh, business. You're a person uh, who's on the side of business. Uh, to which uh, Harold said, listen, I, I am uh, not alone here when I say I am able to walk down the streets of downtown Seattle and the pandemic, along with social unrest and many other factors, have led to boarded up storefronts, have led to uh, uh, businesses not being able to uh, survive or thrive. And so what Harold said uh, as a retort to that, uh, it seemed pretty uh, prepared, he has been a small business owner, he has been an attorney, and he knows how to balance a, a budget with a business, whereas other people might not be able to do. So he says that's his advantage, Jeff. And that particular point that he's making really kind of puts him more towards the center of the political spectrum when most of these candidates are, are pretty far left that we're seeing that are going to be running for Seattle mayor. I think that is a great observation, and that is certainly what he seems to be doing, is going for that center lane. Now, uh, center in Seattle is going to be much different than the center, say, in Biloxi. Uh, it, it's just a, a different type of centrism. Uh, however, he's going to be accused by those who are to the left that he's too conservative, uh, e even though he, he will uh, tell you uh, that's not at all true. So uh, this will be interesting to watch. What I have heard from multiple political observers is they say uh, – you are probably going to wind up with a candidate uh, who m moves on to the uh, general election. You're going to have one person who is a centrist and one person who is much more of a progressive. I don't know how Seattle voters will uh, decide on that, but uh, that is certainly something they will be thinking about. The two other major candidates so far, at least if you're judging by the amount of money raised, according to the PDC filings, would be current city council president Lorena Gonzalez and then uh, newcomer Colleen Echohawk. Yeah, Colleen Echohawk actually is the top. I just checked on the numbers uh, were last updated on Sunday the 14th. She has $104,000 in her campaign contributions so far. She is definitely a person who got out early. She's the executive director of the Chief Seattle Club. Uh, that is a nonprofit, and what they do is they build affordable housing, $100 million worth in the city of Seattle, primarily for Native Americans. So that's $104,000. She's been trying to seal up the endorsements of progressives across the city, and, and certainly with that kind of money, uh, that's not a, a drop in the bucket when it comes to presidential politics we hear about, but $104,000, that's great. And, and we compare that with Lorena Gonzalez, a council member, uh, a person who has had this ambition of a higher office ever since she got into the Seattle City Council. You'll remember she did have a brief run for state attorney general. She has $58,000 in her account now. Uh, she is uh, certainly going to run this race as somebody who is to the left of Bruce Harrell. Uh, they are going to try to uh, bring up that contrast between the two of them, despite them both working together on the Seattle City Council. One other name I don't want you to forget here is Andrew Grant Houston. Um, he is a housing advocate. Uh, he is uh, somebody uh, who has 
been involved uh, with a, a lot of grassroots efforts. He has $49,000 in the bank. That is not anything uh, to dismiss when we talk about this. We also have Lance Randall. If you haven't paid attention to Lance, he has $22,000 in his campaign account. Uh, he is a director of economic development for SEED. That's Southeast Effective Development. And what they do is Yes, they help with economic development and low-income housing for residents living in South Southeast Seattle. Uh, one other quick point that you might not think of if you don't live in Seattle. In Seattle, people who live there have democracy vouchers. And they each of these candidates who are running for mayor, they need 600 Seattle residents to sign a form and make a $10 donation. If they do that, the candidate can get democracy vouchers. And what democracy vouchers are, each Seattle resident uh, is given four $25 vouchers. It doesn't count, cost them anything. That $25 uh, can be spent then on campaign expenses. So they're encouraging all of these candidates, uh, hey, uh, send me all four of your democracy vouchers. That's going to be an important factor as this race moves forward. And we're only getting started because filing day, filing week, still a ways to go. Yeah, it's in May. I, I, I forget the date, but it just makes me kind of uh, sit back and wonder, man, here we are. We're at 14 total candidates with the sitting mayor having dropped out. This is a, going to be a, a race. I, I think uh, Gonzalez and Harrell were two of the big names that were expected to run. But, Jeff, you, you should also keep in mind uh, there's been pressure on other people uh, to run. One political watcher I spoke to the other day uh, said uh, straight up that uh, Gary Locke was asked at a, a, a community roundtable, hey, will you run for uh, mayor of Seattle, uh, to which he politely declined. There are other names mentioned like that. Who knows if they'll actually decide to run run, uh, but we know for sure Gary Locke will not be Seattle's next mayor. Como's Charlie Harger, thank you so much. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and our hourly news updates. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.